Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout-out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and Aha That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. So for now, hey, our fearless friends, here's Lisa Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 175 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, we are joined by yet another phenomenal guest. So who is my guest of this Friday? Well, what I can tell you is Susan Slotnick is an artist, an author, and a social justice volunteer. For the past 25 years, Susan Slotnick has gone behind the walls at correctional facilities every week to bring the joy of modern dance to incarcerated men and boys. Her choreography dealt with serious themes geared to inspire audiences and students towards social justice activism. Susan was born to a mother with a borderline personality and a distant autistic father, not the best nurturing environment for a gifted child. So she rebelled, flunked out of school, and befriended those her mother would have considered undesirables. She basically lived a life completely at odds to the one that would have ordinarily been expected. Early experiences showed Susan how difficult life was for so many, and it instilled in her a passionate zeal to help the marginalized, the forgotten, and the disenfranchised. Her life work and dance company named Figures in Flight has garnered much critical and professional acclaim. Numerous feature articles about Susan have appeared in dance magazines. She received the Dance Studio Magazine's Caring Heart Award, celebrated for Women's History Month as Huffington Post's Greatest Woman of the Day, featured in two radio documentaries, and featured in the documentary The Game Changer that won Best Documentary Short at both the Harlem and Cannes Film Festivals. Susan is also the author of the book Flight, The Dance of Freedom. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Susan, how are you, my friend? I'm really good. Thank you for having me. Well, it's lovely to have you too. And I just want to say without going into too much detail, because this is about you, not about me. But for people who follow me closely, they would know there's quite a bit of parallels between your story and my story. And uh, so I'm very much looking forward to this conversation with you. And I very much appreciate the gift of your time, Susan. So what I was able to garner from the bio, as would the listeners and the podcast subscribers, obviously based on what your infrastructure Uh, or lack thereof in terms of what your upbringing entailed. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship in the family constellation to your passion and your purpose and your fulfillment as it involves dance. Okay. Well, I grew up in Westchester County. As you mentioned, my mother had a borderline personality disorder. My father was an autistic savant. He had a record store with 6,000 records kept in our house. So music was part of my childhood. He actually memorized a quarter of a million record catalog numbers from seeing the record once. 
Hmm. And he would go on television and on radio and show that. But nevertheless, it was a very difficult childhood. And I did very badly in school. But as I talk about in my book, when I was in the seventh grade, I wanted to be like the most popular, most intelligent girl. And she was reading a book called Exodus by Leon Uris. Mm. And I said, I can't be like her. I can't get good grades like her. I can't have the friends she has, but I can read the books she reads. And that started me uh, while I was doing terribly in school. I read every book in the White Plains Library about the Holocaust. Maybe by the time I graduated from high school, possibly hundreds of books. And that was my framework for social justice. That and the fact that we had an African-American maid that lived with us that was treated crazily, varying from one extreme to the other with my mother. Sometimes she was my mother's best friend. Sometimes my mother treated her like a servant. And I was very privy to that. As well as that, I became obsessed with the story, A Christmas Carol. Interesting for a young Jewish girl. But the whole story of the Industrial Revolution the way people were treated, the way materialism took over, and also the way uh, Scrooge was able to become transformed by one night of wisdom. These were the main influences of my childhood, and they created my interest in social justice. In terms of dance, I had the greatest dance teacher in the world, Madame Yuskevich at the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, but I was a terrible student. And by the time I was 11 years old, I was not really able to live up to the expectations of real training. But nevertheless, I danced every day. And dance was my secret passion. So between the Holocaust books, the movie, the crazy background, and the dancing, it all came together late in life when my mission was to go into prisons and teach incarcerated men Alvin Ailey-style modern dance. Brilliant. Fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Well, and you know, oftentimes what I talk about here with my guests, and there's no coincidence to the caliber of guests, and I, I really believe in vibing a vibe attract tribe, is people have often taken their desperation or they've taken their loneliness or they've taken whatever it is that's that's happened in their life, their hardship, and they've transformed it in a way that they've not only received the benefit of doing the work and the healing and finding what outlets serve them, but by doing that and being the walking, talking, breathing example, they've become the, the, the example for other people who can go, oh, you know what? I don't have to be a victim. I don't have to go, okay, this was my lot in life. Therefore, I'm going to resign myself to victimology or whatnot. So I love that you've turned this into servant leadership. I love that you're paying it forward. You're being of service and you're giving back. And you're taking what would perceivably, when you're talking about an incarcerated population, you know, the stereotypes that would also be uh, part and parcel of how they've been branded or misconstrued within society. And you have found the joy within them. And you don't judge them. So I think your whole story and how you've transformed it is absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Yes. And and what I'd like to ask you too, Susan, is, you know, as you've grown up and as you've evolved, you know, are there any ways where you've been able to recognize yourself within your mom, recognize within yourself within your dad, good ways, difficult ways? You know, I'm so amazed that you asked that question, because what I've been thinking of about my mother, who was not well, and my father, who was actually wonderful, but also had a disability, 
My mother was a could-have-been person. I've met could-have-been people all my life, some in the prison, some in my own social circle, people who had great potential, great talent, and for whatever reason were incapable of overcoming the adversity in their early life. And it's a mystery who becomes somebody who tries to pay it forward and takes the pain of their lifetime experiences and does well with it and who doesn't. And how much is that serendipity and influences from without? Teachers who cared about you, friends that you had, books that you read, artistic endeavors you might have become obsessed with. And I realized I could have been a could have been person very easily. And throughout my book, the stories of how I was helped along the way in surprising, coincidental, serendipitous ways. For example, I flunked out of high school, but my mother wanted me to go to college. So I went to night high school. And afterwards, my mother said to me, you need to apply to New Pulse College. It's a nice, quiet place. You'll become a teacher. I went there for an interview. They did interviews. And the interviewer looked at my transcript and my record. And he said, you're never getting into this school. But let's talk anyway. He talked to me for two hours. He took a bottle of wine out of his desk and he toasted me and he said, try to educate yourself. You've got a lot of potential. He pulled strings. And when I got the letter from the college, I threw it in the garbage. My mother, who has always been a problem in my life, but also worked wonders in my life in some ways, she pulled a letter out of the garbage. She opened it. She said, you've been accepted. Mm. This always makes me cry, this story. But when mm -hmm. I got there to New Pulse, I looked for that man who transformed my life. And he was gone. He had taken another job and they wouldn't tell me what his contact information was. And so many times when I'd be in the prison and I would see people changing as a result of the philosophy that I was teaching, I would think of that man. And I would silently say, whoever you are, wherever you are, that two hours of my life transformed my life. So I can't take credit for my own path myself because the could have been people might have been if they'd had people like that in their life. So I try when I go into the prison to be that person. Beautiful. Beautiful, Susan. Well, what you said, I've never heard it put this way. And it's so profound. And it, it just really resonated with me when you said, I could have been a could have been person. I mean, how, how, how eloquent is that? And to the point. So let's take, I could have been a could have been person and, and apply that to the people who have been incarcerated because they would probably pretty much look upon themselves the same way. They've probably be, been deemed by society or turned on, shunned by their own family members, and they have been looked upon and cast aside as you could have been a could have been person. So with that mindset and with that stigma, let's talk about the incorporation of what you've done with them and how that has moved them and transcended them and maybe some some stories of what you've witnessed unfold in front of you well first of all i want to say that one of the problems that i've seen with some people that try to do good in the world is they think it happens because of them when i went into the prison i met the most extraordinary men 
-hmm. unlike any people I'd ever known, with a big wish to transform their lives when they got out. I want to say that 97% of all people in prison will get out eventually. So they had hope for that. And what I felt I did was to give them tools which they then used to change their lives. It's like if you give a person a bunch of tools to build a house and you inspire them to build the house and you give them great tools and you, you present the tools in a magical way and they build the house. In the final analysis, who built the house? They did. Mm. Uh, one of the comments that I get, especially from people who've read the book, even people who are well acquainted with incarcerated populations, they say the way that you have portrayed these men in the book, I never knew prisoners could be of that quality, could speak that way, could be as wise. So I was met with my own idea the first time I went in of who they would be. And then I was hit like a tsunami, hit like a tsunami with um, who they actually were. And by the time men in prison are willing to perform modern dance, very emotional choreography in front of the general population for an hour and a half full concert, they came to me 90% changed already. Mm. So to me, I just got them past the finish line. And I am very skilled at that. And I don't believe in false humility. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was very skilled at inspiring them to dance. And there are comments about dance and their life stories are also in my book. Beautiful. Okay, so I have two things I want to I want to ask make mention of. So when when in often cases, when people think about the most discarded uh, demographic population of people, people do tend to associate that or correlate that with people who have been incarcerated, people who have been imprisoned and all kinds of images conjure up in their mind. Now, did you pick that specific demographic in which to apply the, the cathartic uh, talent gift that you have because you yourself understood what it meant to felt be to feel discarded and perhaps those were the most identifiable, relatable people who could connect with you on that level? Well, Lisa, I've had a lot of interviews in my life and that question just is terrific. It just gets to the exact heart of the matter. So growing up, I was marginalized. I was lonely. I was a failure. And I used to dance. When I was 18, I got into a car with a known bad boy because I didn't have much self-esteem and it was the early 60s and I didn't know quite know what I was doing. And I was the victim of a rape. Mm -hmm. That's how I lost my virginity. So what I did that night, because I was so upset and lonely I danced all night I even remember the song I kept playing over and over again it was the drifters uh, singing some kind of wonderful mm -hmm. and by the morning I felt fine I had processed it through dance so from that moment on I used to say to myself where do people need to feel free who aren't free where do people need to overcome terrible experiences because most of the men that are in prison, most of the women that are in prison are victims. They're perpetrators as well as victims. It surprised me the large number of men in my programs that confided in me that they were sexually abused as children. Mm -hmm. 
or they were just victims of the inequity in our society, which is as profound as anything. Not the best schools, poverty, all kinds of violence that they were subject to in their daily lives in some of the neighborhoods they grew up in. So I saw them as victims that needed the healing power of feeling free, of listening to beautiful music. Also, it is my experience having worked with both men and women, and I know there's a lot now to say about many genders and a continuum in between what we see as men and what we see as women. But for the men that I worked with, their ability to express deep emotion through movement was much better than women. Women were able to speak their emotions. Mm -hmm. They were able to articulate emotions. The men were able to use movement to express emotions. And they did it in a way that was shocking to me and absolutely beautiful. Actually, you can see them dance inside Mm -hmm. on my website, susanslotnick.com. There is a video of them dancing. And once in a while, I would show the video to well-known dancers who I happen to know. And I'd say, who do you think these people are? And they'd say, they look like retired members of the Alvin Ailey company. And I'd say, no, they're prisoners. Mm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. They're, it's it's wow. amazing to see them. They, they're, they're, they were, it blew my mind, the whole experience, actually. Lovely. Well, when I think of incarceration, too, I think of the whole legal system. I think of the process. I think of what's just, what's unjust. But I also, coming from a background of 25 years in social services myself, doing a lot of similar work, such as yourself, different way, but same population of people and others as well. So when I think of the whole legal system, justice system, injustice system, however one wishes to contextualize it, I think of vicarious trauma and I also think of victim impact statement. So in terms of your journey, Susan, have you, has your mom ever within her borderline personality disorder, has she ever been able to get to a point of looking at where you've come in your life, taken either some kind of responsibility or made some kind of atonement where you're concerned? Have you reconciled some of that? Absolutely not. Okay. She was very jealous of me. Mm-hmm. And when I would have an accomplishment, something that she used to say to me, I've totally forgiven her. She's gone now. Mm-hmm. But she would say to me, if you're so wonderful, why haven't you been on Oprah yet? Why haven't you been discovered? And I would yep. look at my mother and I'd say, mom, there's nobody with the job of discoverer. There's no Grauman's fountain or whatever it is where great movie stars of the 30s and 40s got discovered. So she would kind of undermine it a little bit. But the interesting thing was that for a period of time in my life, I worked for the Catholic Church, which was an interesting experience for a Jewish person like myself. And I met a man who did something called spiritual direction. It was a form of therapy, but with a very philosophical spiritual bent. And he said, you can come and be one of my clients and I won't talk about anything overtly Christian. So I told him my life story and he said something to me that was so true. He said, God is working through your mother in spite of her. Mm. My mother picked my husband, which was the greatest, probably the greatest influence of my life was marrying the man I married. My mother forced me to go to college where I met the man that created that miracle. At one point in my life when I suffered miscarriages and infertility, it's actually all in my book. 
my mother said, go on a fast, go on a, a water fast for as long as you can. And we kind of fought over it because she wanted to be there during it. And I thought being around my mother, which was like chalk on a blackboard, plus not eating was more than anyone could survive. But <laughs> I, went on, I went on the fast anyway. And lo and behold, I had two more children. Wow. So I think that my mother, she, you're asking me questions that are making me cry. My mother is the quintessential could have been person in my life. Mm, I understand that. Again, a lot of parallels between you and I and our upbringing. <laughs> Truly, there are. You're resonating a lot with me here, as I'm sure with the listeners and the podcast subscribers. So I'd also like to ask you too, because for you to have the spirit and the adversity and the indomitable spirit that you have, and for you, even just in what you eloquently said about your mom and really recognizing even within the dysfunction, even within the inequity, but you were still able to go, okay, yeah, I'm going to give my mom credit for that because had it not been for her or that gesture of wisdom or kindness or introspectiveness, even if it was just like a blip on the radar for that moment in time, it transformed your life. So the fact that you can still give your mom that kudos, that credit, that, all, that also says a lot to me about your own healing journey and your introspectiveness. But what it also says to me, Susan, is people like you, spirits like you, souls like you, you know, because you've experienced a lot of pain yourself, you're very tapped into the pulse of other people. You read other people extremely well. You understand the unspoken word very well. You understand body language. So I would, I would characterize you in a certain way without knowing you that those qualities also speak to light healer, energy worker. And because you are the light, and people who are in their midst of darkness, they flock to the light. How do you preserve your energy? And if we're talking about vicarious trauma, and I'm sure a lot of people who would relate to you in the prison system, you know, everything would be oozing out of them. You would be like the attractor factor. Oh, this woman gets me. This woman, we have so many parallels. I can unleash, I can, I can disclose, I can whatever. But how have you preserved your own brightness by not getting so tapped out or call it vicarious trauma, uh, that by doing the service that you do, it hasn't taken you under. Well, it's uplifted me. Mm -hmm. But I want to say that people who do what I do, people who do what you do, we still have problems. Yes. We still have happy coping mechanisms like meditation and breathing. And we still have bad ones like alcohol or too much exercise or being, um, for me, I, I love to go to the casino and play slot machines. That relaxes <laughs> me. People say to me, I can't believe you do that with everything you've done in your life. I can't believe you do that. And I say, I need a meditation that is as strong as flashing lights and excitement to forget about my issues for a while. Mm -hmm. So I don't see myself as somebody who has preserved the light easily or all the time. But I do want to tell you that my, I have three daughters. And at this point in my life, I'm 75. And right now I'm painting full time because my degree is in oil painting. And I am dealing with the fact that I have two daughters that are both pregnant. <laughs> and my life now is totally about them. The dancing stopped. The prison stopped. The professional youth company stopped. The choreography stopped. The movie kudos stopped. The traveling to film festivals. Everything stopped. 
And I became everything that I've been for my daughters. And my daughter paid me the supreme compliment within the word light. I was on the phone with her and I was giving her what I've given the men in the prison. She was upset about something and I was talking to her and giving her my attention. And at the end of the conversation, she said to me, mommy, you're like a mirror of light. Mm. Now to get a compliment like that from somebody that knows all your foibles, Mm -hmm. knows you better than anyone, that was the greatest compliment because the men in the prison knew me one way, but to be loved by the people closest to you, the people who've seen you and who see your positive aspects and your negative aspects, Mm -hmm. that compliment preserves my life. Having people around me who can reflect back to me my own worthiness, like my husband, who's never, I know it sounds crazy, I've never heard him say a negative word about another person. He's the kindest person in the world. So these people have allowed me to do that. I I haven't always had the best coping mechanisms. Like I said, I don't like to, I would tell the men in the prison, please don't put me on a pedestal. It's a very shaky place. Mm. I'm going to teach you about mindfulness. And then you might see me walk into a wall on my way out. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And I don't don't really believe that I'm extraordinary. I can tell you that from teaching through Osborne, which I did for a short time, teaching the parenting in prison class, that there are certain things that are simply genetic. And one of the thing, one of the aspects of a human being that has turned out to have a great amount of genetic influence is resilience. Yes. And I have to say that when I was 12 years old, I had a diary that I kept all my life. And when I was writing my book, I looked through it and I saw an entry when I was 12. It said, my mother hates me. I'm flunking everything in school. I have no friends. Why do I believe in myself so much? Oh, Susan. So I have to be grateful for whatever it was genetically that Mm -hmm. allowed me to have what some people might call an indomitable spirit. We, We can't claim what we've done in life. We have to see that it's we're connected to so many other influences than just our own behavior or yes does that make any sense it it makes perfect perfect (laughs) sense perfect sense and I mean and that's the gift that you give yourself too because you're not you're not encumbering yourself you're not placing restrictions on yourself you're you're removing uh the cap on that you're saying you know what I I can get a little bit from here and I can get a little bit from over there and I can get from this population of people who are disenfranchised and I can get this from my mother you know, in spite of everything else. And I can get it from the, the comment that my daughter's given me. And I, I mean, it's just, I just love your, your, I don't even want to call it an outlook on life because it sounds like I'm shortchanging you even by saying that. Um, it's just your spirit. I mean, you emanate such beautiful light and tenacity and, and just this effervescence. I mean, I, I think you're just, you're illuminated. Well, thank you. And I'm also excited because I'm talking to you. So I'm a little more illuminated than usual. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. 
So I'd like to also, being cognizant of time, Susan, I'd like to give you the opportunity to uh, make mention to the listeners and to the podcast subscribers, where can people purchase your book? And, and I know you've kind of removed yourself from every other aspect of what we've been talking about and the focus is on the incoming grandchildren and your daughters. Um, but if, if people wanted to talk to you, I mean, is, do you do consultations? Do you do, you do anything in the realm of one-on-one? Well, every time I published something or the movie went out, I would get calls from people from all over the world. How do I teach in prison? How do I start to teach in prison? And I would speak with these people and I would give them advice on how to get started and the hopes that what I began would be carried on. Now, I'm not totally done working in, with incarcerated people mm-hmm. because the, the pandemic really put a stop on it. But what I was doing was instead of working with the state system, I started to work with the jail here. And I was teaching all a very different population, all people with um, addiction issues, you know, um, of every kind, Mm -hmm. Oxycontin, all of it. And I was teaching art, writing, mindfulness, Mm -hmm. parenting, and dance inside the jail and I probably if I have the opportunity will go back there again I can't work in the state system because I published my book Mm. and once you write about them you lose your volunteer status in the state system but the book itself is a beacon for people who want to work with prisoners it will help them a lot it it, the mistakes that I made because we have stereotypes about prison officials and stereotypes about prison guards and stereotypes about policemen. And in my book, I came to see my stereotypes regarding those people and who had value and there were good people in the system. Mm -hmm. So that would help prepare people just really understanding, reading those chapters in the book, because you need to go in, not as I did originally, You can't go in with a chip on your shoulder. You can't go in thinking everyone else is the man and the prisoners are the poor people you have to help. You have to approach the entire system with kindness and understanding and an Mm -hmm. open mind. And I have a quick story to tell you about a corrections officer if you have time. Of course. So I would get escorted down to the room where I taught. And the corrections officers were a mixed bag. Sometimes they were wonderful. Sometimes they were awful. Sometimes they tried to scare me out of coming. Sometimes they tried to, you know, they thanked me. They were like everybody else. There's good and bad in everything. Mm-hmm. But one time I was being escorted by a, um, a corrections officer that I'd never seen before. And as I'm walking down there, he looks at me and he says to me, are you Jewish? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, so am I, but you're not going to like the kind of Jew I am. And I said, well, try me. He said, I'm a Jew for Jesus. I said, that's okay. That's your belief system. He said, God put me in this prison because every time I see an incarcerated person, I look them in the eye, I make myself uh, present, and I pray for them. Hmm. That happened in the prison too. And we, and we approach so much in life with preconceived notions that we could almost miss an experience like that. For example, if I hadn't been open to him and he said to me, are you Jewish? I might have said, it's none of your business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And closed off the possibility to have that amazing 
experience. I never saw that guard again. And it was so funny um, because part of me thought, was he real? Or is this a Bernard Malamud short story where he was an angel in a uniform? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in either which case, it's a beautiful story and for you, a beautiful memory and exchange that you had. So, and I appreciate that because of that and because you were open and receptive to his question, you've now been able to share that and impart that with myself and the listeners. So I really appreciate that. A quick question, Susan, is... um, whether it be conscious, subconscious, um, is there any reason why you had more of an affinity towards working with incarcerated men and yes. boys as opposed to women? Okay. Yes. I was known in the little dance world for having the only dance school for children between the ages of five and 18 that always had more boys than girls. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew why. And I would get phone calls from other teachers. I'm trying to get boys. I'm giving them free classes. How do you have a professional youth company with 14 boys and six girls? (laughs) And one time this former dancer named Rudy was asked this question when we performed at a college. How come there are so many boys in the dance company? And he said, well, I don't really know, but I guess it's because Susan's She's like one of the boys and also our mother. (laughs) Aw, that's beautiful. But the kind of dancing that I taught, and I think this is very interesting, I teach the Horton technique, which is the basic technique that the Alvin Ailey Company was founded on. It's very ballistic. It's very grounded. It's not airy. It's very muscular, and it's very dramatic. And that particular technique resonated with boys and men very well. When I went into Bedford Hills once to teach modern dance to women, their movement was lyrical, it was delicate, it was beautiful, but often, and this is a generalization, women are in prison because of some man getting the best of them, making them do something that was criminal. Not all, but many. Mm-hmm. And for men, they were, the, they were kind of the aggressors, and women were kind of the people who were influenced drove a getaway car or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the women danced with more sensitivity and, and, and etherealness, but the men danced with more aggression, which met the kind of movement that I was teaching better. Although I did work with women and I did enjoy working with women, but I felt that what I had to offer just in terms of the physical technique I taught was better for big muscular men. Beautiful. I guess that answers it. Yeah, absolutely. I hate to generalize. Has- you know, I, I don't like to generalize anything about men or women because we have uh, been sophisticated and learned that, you know, all of gender is on a continuum. But those were my general experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your candor and I appreciate you, you know, not having to feel so politically correct about it and just speaking your truth because that's all we want to hear anyway, at least on my show. So thank you for that. Um, what does living fearlessly mean to you? I mean, clearly from my perspective, you embody it. Uh, I think you're a very empowered, beautiful soul, spirit. And I feel very akin to you, very strongly. But what does living fearlessly mean to you, Susan? Well, in order to live fearlessly, you have to cultivate not giving a flying Yes, there. you can say fuck on my about, show. 
<laughs> not giving a flying fuck what anyone thinks of you. Once you are subject to caring about other people's opinions, and I'm not saying I don't react. I just got a letter in the paper, and I have a newspaper column, and I just got a letter objecting to the column. And I had five minutes of, oh, you mean there's someone out there that doesn't love me? But nothing <laughs> like that has ever stopped me. I, yes. I have said, I don't give a damn what anybody thinks. I'm going to do what I do. There's no way in life not to be criticized. There's no way in life not to be misconstrued or misjudged, yes. no matter who you are. Once you're a victim of that, you have no courage. Mm. So true. So true. I've never heard it put that way. Um, but that is so true. And I appreciate that version, that take on it. Now, what, what have I not asked you that would be important for people to know, not just myself, but the listeners and the podcast subscribers, because again, being cognizant of time, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up here, but I don't want to miss your opportunity to get something out there that is really meaningful or profound to you that needs to be shared here. Okay, here it is. Everything that has ever happened in this world started with an idea in someone's head. Mm -hmm. And everything that doesn't happen ends when they don't put that idea into action. Yes. Anything can be accomplished from just a thought. I had this thought. I'd like to see where people who don't feel free can feel free. That could have stayed in my head or been a passing thought like wind. But I put it into action. So I would say that's what I want people to know. Have the courage to put your thoughts into action. Love that, Susan. Really love that and appreciate that. And I so, also can say that I am proud of my book. I would like people to read it. I mm -hmm. went through the trouble of writing it. And I think there's a lot in there that would be useful for people that I know that I had uh, someone on a podcast who interviewed me say that there's a lot of sayings that she wrote down from the book mm -hmm. that she loved. Uh, one of them that she really loved, she said that I said in the book that my work, I tossed, I tossed seeds into a wild garden mm. all my life, but I wasn't responsible for what came up. It was the elements. It was, was there going to be rain? Were weeds going to strangle them? Would there be enough sun? So I believe that we should toss our seeds into a wild garden, trust the elements, and not expect what happens. I didn't expect any of the acclaim that I had. No one goes to do their artwork in a prison to become famous. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, those seeds came up in the most unbelievable ways that I never expected. Well, but that's because you operated from your heart space. You weren't doing things fabricated. You weren't doing things contrived. You weren't doing it for optics. You weren't doing it for kudos. That's what makes the people such as yourself, who initially start out as perhaps unsung heroes, they become the influencers. They become the servant leaders. They become the go-to people. They become the light workers and the energy workers. Because it came from a natural place. It was organic. It was, you, you know, you acted upon what you felt compelled to do. And because you were in your truth, everyone benefited from it. And it took off like rocket fuel. It did. Yeah. To my surprise and to my amazement, even though I haven't been discovered yet, and I, I still haven't been on Oprah. Well, either of I, but we're, we're getting there. But we're both getting there. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't actually at the end Not of the day. At all. It no, it really doesn't. Um, just Can I say one more quick thing of about course. that? 
Yeah. All my students at certain ages wanted to be famous. You know, that's that's part of being in junior high school, especially being in the arts, the performing arts. So I would try to get them to have a bigger wish than to be famous. And I would say to them, how many times this year have you seriously thought about Abraham Lincoln? And they'd say, not at all. I'd say fame doesn't live that way. You can be mm -hmm. famous and still not live with in the with with people in the future it's your direct influence that will make you live beyond your own life so that's absolutely what I believe. so i i don't really i mean i like oprah but i i don't really care my mother cares. <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm really pressed for time here but i i, I feel that's fine you, I, I enjoy no, no 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 i'm not done here i i have to okay. ask you this question although i very much pick up on you're comfortable in your own skin and you're very comfortable in your own voice, your power, your presence. Um, where do you personally feel the safest? With my husband and my daughters. Lovely. But mostly with my husband. He is a remarkable person who did nothing but support me all my life, no matter what. Beautiful. My Beautiful. mother picked. <laughs> So there you have it, the mystery of life. <laughs> well, Susan, I just want to thank you once again for the gift of your time. I've personally gotten a lot out of this. This is going to, I don't often have time to play things back. This is going to be one that I play things back. Thank and, you. Yeah, and I'm going to do a reach out to you when this is all said and done. Because um, I want to talk more to you on a personal level. But uh, I just want to say I think you're phenomenal. Uh, thank you so much for being exactly who you are and being exactly who you are and making the decision to be every day and rising uh, and being authentic to you. We've all reaped the benefits of that. Even if for me, I just got like this, like 55 minute interview, I, but I will always remember this and I will always remember you. So thank you. And we're not done yet. I'd like no. to hear about your mother. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, that's like, a, that's about 10 shows in one. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm not going to do that and to look you. look where you are. You survived it and have done something wonderful. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, and we'll definitely, if you're interested, we'll have you back on the show. Because I'd love to talk to you from the grandmother perspective. If oh, you I, want. Would, I would love that. I would okay. love that. Okay. Well, let's, and I think there's going to be more books in you based on that experience. But that's just my, that's my no, gut feeling. That's the book. That's it. Okay. Light the dance of freedom. That's, you know, I'm, I'm like the guy who wrote Call It Sleep. I have one book in me and I wrote it. Okay. Well, I never say never, but I'll believe you. I'll <laughs> go with that, Susan. Okay. Thank you so much, Lisa. This thank was a you. great interview. I really, really appreciated your questions. They went right to the heart of things. Oh, you're beautiful. Thank you, Susan. And I'll be reaching out to you, like I say, behind the scenes at a later time. Good. But to the listening audience, I want to thank you very much for the gift of your time and for connecting and joining myself and Susan Slotnick. Again, get her book. Honestly, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And give it to other people. That's what it's all about. Don't hoard. Don't hoard it. Share it. Uh, I'm very exceptionally clear on my purpose. My purpose is to uplift you to fear less and to live more. Until next week when we're joined by yet another phenomenal guest, I want to thank you with all my heart for the downloads, for the listenership, for the subscribership, uh, and just for what you're doing in your own world and the ways in which you're enriching and uplifting other people in your circles. I appreciate you. Till next week, have a wonderful weekend. Love and gratitude and love and gratitude to you as well, Susan. Take care and all my best, my friend.
Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout-out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and AHA That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. And until next week, our fearless friends, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio telling you to be your own hero, be your own hero, be your own leader, and be your own best friend. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.